Hello, Renoites listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuibby. I'm your host, as always. Renoites is the weekly interview podcast where I talk to all different kinds of people in Reno who are doing interesting things. Sometimes it's political folks, sometimes businesses, arts organizations, all different kinds of people that are important to our city, that are doing things that matter, and that have interesting things to say. This week's guest I'm very excited to talk to is Ron Kamenko. Ron is the co-chair of the Nevada Rail Coalition and the general secretary of the Railroad Workers United. This episode is all about trains. Ron and I talk about the rail system in the United States generally, why it's different from other forms of transit and freight, the effects that unions have had on the railroad industry over the years, the potential for more passenger rail in the United States, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, how that may affect passenger rail, the environmental benefits of rail over other forms of transit, all kinds of really great stuff about the importance of our rail system in the United States. It was a really great conversation. I could listen to Ron talk for hours. I learned so much from this interview. Before we get to that, as always, Renoites is brought to you by DJ Trivia. I am a host for DJ Trivia several nights a week at a few different venues in town. If you haven't played please come check us out. It's a lot of fun. It's a family-friendly trivia game. Most of our venues are restaurants. You can bring the family. Some of them are 21 and over bars, but it's a great community event, a good way to hang out with people in the community, to support your local businesses, and to flex those trivia skills. Show off how smart you are. It's a lot of fun. It's free to play. You can find all of the locations at djtrivianevada.com. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram at DJ Trivia Nevada to find a venue near you. This week's episode is also brought to you by This Is Reno. This Is Reno is a local news source for all things that are happening and important in the city of Reno. I don't really consider this a news podcast. It's more long-form interviews. Sometimes it's about the news of the day. But it's important that we do have local news covering the issues that matter most in a timely manner. And that is what This Is Reno does. You can follow This Is Reno on Facebook and Instagram. I get their headlines in my email box or go to thisisreno.com to read the latest news. The team at This Is Reno does a fantastic job of keeping everyone informed about what's going on in town. In the next couple of weeks, they're hosting a series of candidate forums for local elections. They did one the other week with the mayoral candidates, and there's a couple more coming up in the next couple of weeks. So please check those out as well. You can find all the information, once again, at thisisreno.com. I'm very grateful for the work they do in maintaining a strong local news presence. As always, if you have any feedback or suggestions for me, ideas for guests, topics, things you want to hear on the show, I love to hear from listeners. Please reach out whenever you want to. My email address is connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. Please let me know what you think of the show, what you'd like to hear more of, suggestions for guests. I really appreciate that. And now, this week's guest, Ron Kamenko. Ron Kamenko, welcome to Renoites. Thanks for coming on the show. You are the one of the chairs of the Nevada Rail Coalition. You are a train guy. This episode is all about trains, so I'm excited to talk to you about uh, about rail because it's something that you've dedicated a lot of time and energy to. So thank you for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Connor. I like to talk about the railroad. Right. So the best place to start, I think, is just your history with working for the railroads. It's something you've done for a really long time. It's a pretty major part of your life. Can you just start by telling me about the work, what you do for the railroads, like what your job is and how long you've been doing it, and kind of how you got involved in being so dedicated to, to rail? 
Well, I'm a locomotive engineer, uh, so I drive the train. We don't call them drivers in the United States. Most countries call them train drivers. In this country, they're referred to generally as locomotive engineers. In this day and age, basically, you hire in as a brakeman or what now is simply called a conductor trainee. I hired in in Chicago in 1996 with a railroad called Conrail. It doesn't exist any longer. It was swallowed up by two larger Class One railroads, so it disappeared from the map largely in 1999. At that point, I had already gotten promoted to conductor, and then I got my engineer certification, and so I went on to work for Norfolk Southern as an engineer. And then, uh, make a very long story short, I left Norfolk Southern. I ended up coming to Amtrak in 2004, and I have been a locomotive engineer out of Milwaukee, Chicago, and now Reno, Nevada. Gotcha. How long have you been in the Reno area? I came out here in 2006. Uh, There was a lot of issues going on in Chicago. Uh, They needed an engineer, and they would do what's called pay you to qualify on the territory. And so I talked to the supervisor, known as a road foreman, and he said, oh, you'll love it, you'll love it, Uh, No winter, no blizzards, (laughs) no storms, uh, sunny every day. Come on out. He was actually from Milwaukee himself. So uh, I came out in 2006 expecting to go back to the Midwest, but I fell in love with this area and I've been here ever since. Excellent. One of the things that I understand about rail, and I think we talked a little bit about this the other day, is there's two different types of major use for rail is there's passenger rail and freight. And the passenger rail is not really where the money is for a lot of these railroad operators. So you work for Amtrak, you're on kind of the passenger side, but can you talk a little bit about the the difference between those two and kind of how to prioritize or how to make sure that we're making the most of both the the freight side and the passenger side and kind of the, the priorities that come with that? Yeah, we live in a pretty unique country when it comes to railroads. Most railroad infrastructure in every other country in the world is owned publicly. And at first glance, that sounds very socialistic. Uh, It sounds like, oh, well, that's not very American. But if you look at the infrastructure of this country when it comes to transportation, other than rail, we're pretty much like every other country in the world. We have an extensive inland waterway system, the Mississippi, the Ohio, uh, the Missouri, uh, lots of rivers, and they have locks and dams and other supporting infrastructure. The channels are dredged. This is all done by general taxation. The Army Corps of Engineers largely maintains these rivers so that they can be navigable and uh millions of tons of grain and fuel, fertilizer, coal are transported on the nation's waterways by private companies, by private barge tow companies, but they don't own the infrastructure. By the same token, uh, we have hundreds and hundreds of uh, trucking companies in this country. Uh, It's a very free enterprise industry, if you will, especially since the deregulation of the trucking industry that took place in the 70s and 80s. Uh, But once again, the trucking companies do not own their own infrastructure. They operate on public highways, whether they're funded by counties, states, 
or the federal government. It's only the railroads that are unique in that regard that they are not only run the trains, but also hold the infrastructure privately. And this causes kind of some problems, one of which is they will operate those railroads exactly how they wish to operate them, period. And they are the sole user as a general rule of the tracks that they own. As any good businessman will tell you and any Wall Street hedge fund trader will tell you, the business of business is business. It's not satisfying society. It's not um, uh, uh, taking care of the national interest. It is making a profit. And the railroads in this country are very, very good at that. And in the last 40 years, they have excelled. And in fact, some of the railroad stock is some of the highest priced, highest valued on Wall Street. Uh, Warren Buffett, who we all know is the head of the Berkshire Hathaway, his company bought Burlington Northern Santa Fe, the second biggest or the first biggest, depending on how you cut it, uh, class one railroad in this country. And after a few years, he said his expectations were far exceeded. He's extremely happy with his purchase of BNSF. It has become one of the more money-making uh, properties in his portfolio, if you will. But that doesn't necessarily bode well for passenger trains because passenger trains haven't been profitable for 100 years, basically. Uh, as soon as there was other means to transport people, the internal combustion engine largely made passenger train travel relatively unprofitable. And most countries in the world, if you go visit in France or Spain or Japan, they have these incredible passenger train networks and people come home with glowing reports and they say, why can't we have that in this country? And the reason is, is because we have to pay for it. Those high-speed trains, that on-time performance, those 35 departures a day between major cities, that's heavily subsidized by the taxpayers of those countries. Got it. I was going to ask you about the comparison between other countries and the United States in terms of our passenger rail, because I hear the same thing. People always talk about the wonderful passenger rail in in Europe and these like high-speed bullet trains in Japan, and it feels like America is behind the curve as far as rail transit. And is that largely, you said, because of the the private railways that we don't have a public kind of funded and public subsidized rail system? And is that something that you think is possible in America? Is it something that is just getting the will of the people on board for it? Is it about lobbying? Like, can we get closer to what these other countries have? Is that a possibility? And, and how do you think we do that? Well, it's certainly an impediment. I mean, having a private really held railroad infrastructure that digs its heels in and demands huge compensation generally for operating passenger trains, it presents a problem. For one, if you can overcome the political inertia and convince the populace that, yes, we want to spend taxpayer money on trains. But what we see is that money is actually going to huge Fortune 500 corporations. It can rub people the wrong way. 
And so that, I think, is always going to be a problem. If Union Pacific or BNSF or Norfolk Southern agrees to run a specific passenger train and says, well, we need $200 million in infrastructure improvements to do it, and that $200 million goes into the coffers of Norfolk Southern, let's say, in theory, they're going to spend that money on that infrastructure, but it just doesn't look too good to be you know, it, it, it sort of appears as corporate welfare. And we've the people in this country are pretty sick and tired of seeing so much money going to huge corporations in, in that form. For example, General Motors and Ford back during the Great Recession, you know, too big to fail. People are tired of that. And so when you see a huge railroad with record stock prices and record profits, then being, quote, subsidized by the American taxpayer, even though there's going to be a payoff in the form of passenger trains that we all can ride and make our quality of life better, it's it's a dance for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, we had a we have a, the train trench in Reno. I remember that being the biggest rail infrastructure project that I know of that's been in this area where we dug this trench for the trains to go under downtown instead of through downtown. But I don't really know the history of that. Was that one of those cases where it was kind of a publicly subsidized thing for the railroads? And did we get what we expected out of it? Can you kind of give some background on that one? Yeah, it's debatable, you know, what that really was was all about and who actually benefited. The majority, the vast majority of that money to build that trench was public money. And in the course of building that trench, it was made clear that this will facilitate freight movement from California through Nevada, which would benefit the state of Nevada for many, many reasons that we can go into. That freight development never really took place. And I can't speak specifically of this route, but nationally, we're moving less freight today on rail than we did 16 years ago. The trench went in just about 17 years ago, I think, before I came to Reno in 2005, I think they finished it up. So just about the time, ironically, that that trench was being finished, uh, U.S. freight traffic has never exceeded those totals since that time. Now, I'm not speaking specifically about this line, but I do know this. It appears to me as an Amtrak engineer who traverses this railroad, that there is less freight moving. And if it's in conformity with, you know, the the numbers in the rest of the country, uh, that would certainly seem to be the case. Now, at the time that the trench went in, there was glowing reports that it was going to facilitate train movement. And, you know, we could have upwards of 40 trains a day moving through Reno and Sparks. And in fact, we actually have less trains today uh, why is it, do you think, that there is less freight moving, not just through Reno, but in general? You said it's down kind of everywhere. Well, there's a number of different business models that you can follow if you are a business. And one of them is grow the business and get more customers. And in doing so, you may have to make sacrifices along the way. You might offer two-for-one sales or buy one, get one free, or you may actually artificially decrease your pricing to win new customers with the understanding that a new customer 
is somebody then who you can work with and will potentially not only ship a carload or two in a week, maybe they'll increase their business and ship 10 carloads a week or 100 carloads a week. Well, the railroad industry basically has, for all intents and purposes, done away with their marketing department. The railroad industry appears for the most part to be quite happy, thank you, with the business that it has. And much of that business would be very, very difficult to go by truck. Bulk commodities like grain and coal, fertilizer and chemicals, uh, fracking sand, ethanol, these sorts of uh, substances often that run in large, what they call unit trains of a hundred or more cars of the same commodity. That's not really going to find its way onto the, onto trucks. So they somewhat have a monopoly of many of these um, products. And so another way to increase your, your, your business or your profitability is to raise rates. And the Surface Transportation Board, which has been um, conducting hearings in the last week or so on the nature of the Class 1 railroads, Chairman Oberman called in the managers, the CEOs, only one actually showed up, but called in the CEOs of the big Class 1 railroads to testify and to answer questions about what is going on with the freight industry. Because right now, things are fairly constipated around the country There's a huge shortage of train and engine crews. On-time performance is rapidly deteriorating, et cetera, et cetera. And what we're seeing is an industry that has basically opted to not go out and court new business. It, 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 It might take new business if it came walking right up to it, but it's not actively recruiting new business. I mean, how can like, is that something that we can fix? Like, how do we motivate the railroad companies to to maximize their business, to take on new business, to expand? I understand they're really profitable. You would think that, you know, in our capitalist America, that if there's more money on the table to be had, that they would go for it. Is there anything that we can do or that you are doing or that the organizations that you're with do to try to increase the amount that we're doing with our rail system? Well, it's a good question. You know, you have to look, and, and I must admit, I, I don't really know the, the answer, but if we look at the history of the rail industry in this country, a certain bargain was struck with the government. We're going to give you the land to build the railroad, and in return is this thing called common carrier obligation. And this is a phrase that's now starting to be batted around. What exactly is the common carrier obligation that the railroad has to society? Now, up until its abolition under the Clinton administration, the Interstate Commerce Commission largely set rates on the railroad as to what a railroad could charge to move a commodity from point A to point B and so forth. The ICC was cumbersome, it was antiquated, it was outdated, and one could argue that it did not allow the rail industry to make the profit necessary to reinvest in the physical plant to keep the tracks in good working order, keep the locomotives well-maintained, and so forth and so on. And so in the bad old days, 
the operating ratio of the class one railroads was well into the 0.9, you know, 90% or higher. And what that means is for every dollar taken in, 90, 95 cents of that dollar was spent on operating costs, leaving very, very little left over for things like investment in infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So the Staggers Act was adopted by Congress, I believe it was 1980, maybe 81, and it largely deregulated the railroad. One would say potentially with mixed results. On the positive side, the railroad industry has been able to dramatically reduce the operating ratio. The physical plant is in relatively good shape. But unfortunately, I would maintain that the vast majority of the profits have gone to things like stock buybacks and dividends to stockholders, huge exorbitant uh, CEO salaries. We've seen this in lots and lots of industries. The rail industry is not unique on Wall Street by any means. And so even the Surface Transportation Board, which recently came out with some uh, study on the numbers, shows that in the last, I believe it was over the last 10 or 15 years, the rail industry has spent a far greater portion of its wealth on stock buybacks than actually capital investments. Under the new definition of capital investments in rail, this isn't double tracking or electrification or lots and lots of high-speed crossovers between tracks, et cetera, et cetera. This is basic maintenance in rails, ties, ballast. Uh, just as a factory might say, you know, it, it, every 30 years it might need a new roof. That's not actually improvements. Mm -hmm. It's just simply basic repairs. And that's where the other chunk of money has gone to, leaving very, very little for actual investment. I would maintain that probably in the last 40 years, we have lost more double-track railroads than we have created. There's been a few segments of very, very busy, important main lines that have been double-tracked, but numerous other uh, main lines have been single-tracked. It leaves the United States, ironically, with the biggest rail network in the world and also, all things considered, all rail lines considered, one of the most lightly used networks in the entire world because much of the freight is just moving on 10 or 20% of our network. The other 75, 80% is very lightly used, secondary main lines, branch lines, and running tracks. Is there hope that with the, there was an infrastructure bill passed last year that there's potentially going to be more money invested in infrastructure, including rail. Is that part of the the plan for that infrastructure bill, or do you expect that to to make a dent or to make a difference? Well, the bipartisan infrastructure bill was historic and gives passenger train advocates in particular reasons to celebrate. Since the founding of Amtrak, I don't think we've seen such a sizable amount of money that has been dedicated to improve passenger rail service in this country. And so what we expect to see if all things go well, and it's debatable whether they'll go well, but what we hope to see is new routes connecting major city pairs like Nashville 
and Atlanta, Mobile, Alabama, and New Orleans, St. Paul, Minnesota, and Chicago, Illinois. And we'd like to see additional frequencies. The last one I just mentioned has one train. The hope is that it'll have two trains a day. And so these different corridors around the country are expected to develop in the coming years. However, there is a drama playing out right now on the Gulf Coast where Amtrak once ran a train, the Sunset Limited ran all the way from Los Angeles to Jacksonville, Florida. And when Hurricane Katrina came along, the route that it ran over on CSX, one of the big class one railroads, uh, was washed out. And so the service was then truncated at New Orleans. Within a year or so, CSX built the railroad back up, repaired the bridges and so forth. But Amtrak has never returned its train to that routing. And it has studied it endlessly. It has proposed endlessly to bring that train back. And now what it's proposing is simply running a train from New Orleans to Mobile, Alabama, I believe two trains in each direction every day. And CSX and Norfolk Southern, the two class one railroads over which this, uh, this corridor train would run, are extremely resistant. And at one point, I believe CSX uh, said it would take $2.1 billion to restore the train, which I found to be <laughs> incredibly disingenuous at best uh, and just an outright lie at worst because CSX is a 27,000-mile network, I believe. And in that same year, 2019 or 2018, its entire capital budget, which basically is, you know, as we were talking, maintenance, was $2.1 billion. Uh, or two or two point two billion, whatever the case, very close to the, the to the number that it said it's going to need to facilitate a handful of passenger trains uh, running on 150 miles of its territory. So they're digging their heels in. The fight is on. There's been hearings endlessly at the STB now. Hearings scheduled, I believe, now again for May 9th and 11th. And it's hard to say what the Surface Transportation Board will finally rule, but it's, it's, it's a big issue because if Amtrak is not allowed to run these trains or has to pay an exorbitant fee in infrastructure improvement, it is going to drastically reduce the number of new trains and new corridors and new frequencies that they'll be able to put into place with the money from the infrastructure bill. One of the connections I would love to see is between Reno and the Bay Area. I know that there is, I think, some train service between here and the Bay, but nothing that is fast and consistent and really does connect us in a way that, you know, passengers in Reno could hop on an affordable train and go to the Bay for the day. That seems amazing, but I know there are some real limiting factors, obviously, the Sierra Nevadas are a mountain range, so it's not easy to just lay track there. But we do have track between here and the Bay. Can you talk a little bit about the connections here in the Reno area to other places for passengers? Sure. As an Amtrak engineer, it's not uncommon 
when I am bringing the California Zephyr into Reno or taking it east towards Winnemucca, 100, 150 people disembark or get on the train and go to California, even on weekdays. Weekends are especially busy. And of course, in the winter, when there's inclement weather, which can be quite often sometimes in the Sierra Nevada throughout the winter months, uh, Amtrak is the only thing smoking. It's the only thing going over the mountain. Uh, when Highway 80 shuts down, which happened a number of times back in uh, earlier in the winter, the train immediately sells out. There is definitely a market from Reno Sparks, which is probably rapidly approaching about a half a million in the greater metro area. As more and more people move here from California, they still have a lifeline to California. But even those who don't have friends and relatives and family or a job in California, from Reno Sparks, there's a huge amount of traffic going to visit the Bay Area. And from the Bay Area and Sacramento, obviously, Reno is a huge mecca, um, not what it once was, but for, for gambling and for entertainment and so forth, uh, still many, many people ride in on the train Friday and Saturday night and then go back home Sunday and Monday. And this is on a train that really doesn't have the best arrival and departure times. This is on a train that's what's called a long distance train that's really not suited to the short distance market and comes all the way from Chicago. So quite frequently it's late because it's an obstacle course getting all the way from Chicago to Reno. If we could run dedicated trains from Reno Sparks to Sacramento and the Bay Area with extension, obviously from the Bay Area to San Jose and beyond, we believe in the Nevada Rail Coalition, it would be an immediate success. Excellent. So tell me a little bit more about the Nevada Rail Coalition. The other big part of this conversation I want to have with you is about the Railroad Workers Union, the Nevada Rail Coalition, these organizations that you're involved with that are trying to make changes. So can you tell me a little bit about what both of those organizations are and what you do for them? Sure. Well, the Nevada Rail Coalition was founded officially in fall of 2021, so just about six, eight months ago. And Railroad Workers United had been working closely with the Sierra Club on the whole question of how can we work together on issues like rail safety, rail expansion, et cetera, et cetera. Environmentalists, by their very nature, support or should support rail. Rail is the most efficient means of transportation known to humanity. For every gallon of diesel fuel used, you can transport two, three, or four times as many passengers and as much tonnage. Uh, railroads can be electrified with overhead catenary, uh, making them even more efficient. And then through a thing called uh, regenerative braking, as a train slows or uh, uses braking to retard, for example, coming off of Donner Pass, electric locomotives can, in effect, be turned into generators and actually generate electricity. And so they're incredibly efficient. They also use way less land than an interstate highway. A double-track railroad probably uses about 20% of the land space that a full-blown interstate highway, complete with medians and and uh, breakdown lanes and so forth. 
40,000 people a year die on the nation's highways. It's a statistic that's not often talked about. I believe another 100,000 are maimed for life. These are excruciating statistics. Rail is the safest means of transportation, also known to humanity. So it's only natural that environmentalists uh, are catching on a little bit slow in this country, but all over the world to understand that if we want to reach a carbon neutral economy, trains are going to have to play a significant role in that. Now, meanwhile, from the from the railroad worker perspective, things have not been kind to us in recent years. The class one railroads, like I say, they're driven by Wall Street, you know, investment firms. And cutting costs has become sort of the number one way for the rail industry to continue to make record profits. As I talked about earlier, the different business models you can pursue, you can pursue more customers and move more freight, or you can uh, increase rates and cut costs. And one of the big ways you can cut costs is get rid of workers. And so they're running trains extremely long. Uh, and they had cut back on train and engine crews very severely in the year or two prior to the pandemic, despite the fact that the economy was not in a recession. We'd never really seen anything quite like that before. With a fairly booming economy, the railroad began to hammer away at the workforce. And so between the operating model that the Class 1 freight carriers are employing and the fact that fossil fuel energy that we have traditionally has traditionally been the railroads bread and butter moving coal has pretty much kept many railroads profitable and out of bankruptcy for decades this is all going away so obviously we have an interest in maintaining our levels of employment maintaining our wages benefits and working conditions we understand that there is a better way to run a railroad and that means more freight, not less. That includes passenger trains, not their abolition. And so railroad workers and environmentalists are coming together, finally, around the country because they see that there's a mutual interest. And they can support each other politically. And so in the Rail Coalition, we have currently 14 organizations, a number of environmental groups, including the Sierra Club, and then a number of unions, including both unions of the operating crafts, the conductors union, which is known as Smart Transportation Division, the engineers union, which is known as the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, the organization that I serve as general secretary of, Railroad Workers United. And we also have Teamsters Local 533, who represents the bus drivers right. here in Reno and UPS drivers and so forth. And the Northern Nevada Central Labor Council, which itself is a coalition of, I believe, 38 different local unions in this area. And the state uh, AFL-CIO, which represents most of organized labor in the state of Nevada. And all of these organizations are coming together with the understanding that rail would be a dramatic improvement to our quality of life, the quality of air in the state. It would reduce the wear and tear on the highways. It would reduce highway accidents, uh, highway congestion, uh, provide good paying union jobs for thousands, if not tens of thousands of workers. 
uh, and create a much more livable community. It's the wave of the future. Yeah, you mentioned there's all these different unions and different organizations that are kind of coming together to work together. Is there something unique or different about the rail industry and the variety of different crafts and different unions that makes it more difficult to get people organized and all working together? Well, yeah, this is one of the reasons why the group I serve as General Secretary of Railroad Workers United. This is why we exist. Rail workers were some of the first workers to organize into unions in this country. And one of the reasons that they were the first to organize was railroad work was extremely dangerous. Most all of the crafts, whether you worked in the shop or you worked laying track or you were in train and engine service, the injury rate was extremely high. The fatality rate was off the charts. At times, believe it or not, it was worse than in the mining industry. And so generally, safety is an issue that many, many workers organize around because you're literally talking about uh, saving your life. And so mutual support uh, in, in numbers, there's strength, and workers came together basically to push for safer working conditions. The sad thing is that when these unions first came together, they came together by craft, and this is not unusual. This is basically the pattern all over the world. Workers who are exploited, who's the first person you're going to reach out to? In general, the person that you work with, the person that shares your misery, the person that shares your conditions and understands your situation. And so the engineers organized first in 1863, followed shortly thereafter by the firemen and the conductors, the brakemen, telegraphers, maintenance of way, and the list goes on and on. Well, early on, some of these rail union leaders came to understand that the robber barons, you know, the, the, that was the nickname for the big industrialists who owned railroads uh, back in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s. The robber barons were just too powerful and could divide and conquer the craft unions. And so a man by the name of Eugene V. Debs, who was the secretary treasurer, I believe, of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen's Union, he, along with other enlightened union leaders of the day in rail, came together and said, look, it's time for us to break with the craft union system. It's not working. Uh, the carriers are too strong, and they have successfully divided and conquered us, and we're literally scabbing on each other. And so Debs and the others formed the thing called the American Railway Union in 1893. They went on strike against the Great Northern Railroad that was headed by a man named James J. Hill, affectionately monikered as the Empire Builder. He even had a train eventually named uh, after him, which still runs today, Amtrak's Train 7 and 8, which go between Ch uh, Chicago and Seattle. So anyway, in 12 days, the American Railway Union shut down the Great Northern tight uh, the Great Northern conceded to all of the demands of the ARU, which was the first industrial union in North America. And by industrial union, I mean a union that encompasses all workers throughout an, a specific industry. Uh, 
The idea being that an industrial union gives you a lot more power than parceling yourself off in the old craft union system. Mm -hmm. Well, to make a very long story short, the following year, the Pullman strike took place, which many folks have heard of. Very famous labor battle in U.S. history. The American Railway Union voted to accept the Pullman workers into the union to honor the Pullman boycott. And uh, the president sent federal troops. They broke up the union. Dozens and dozens of strikers were shot and killed. Eugene Debs and the others were thrown in jail. Uh, the union's uh, offices were ransacked, files confiscated. And most importantly, workers who had been ARU members were all blacklisted. And so that was the end of the ARU. But f from that day to this, railroad workers have been longing for an industrial union because those of us who see the wisdom in having like the auto workers, the steel workers, the rubber workers, the textile workers, and others that were finally organized into industrial unions under the CIO banner in the 1930s, we didn't participate in that great labor uprising in the 30s because we were already, quote unquote, organized. We were organized into craft unions, which has now been ossified by the Railway Labor Act. And so we're kind of saddled with this system. But as RWU members would say, just because we can't be one union doesn't mean that we can't act like one union. So our slogan is solidarity, unity, and democracy. All railroad workers, regardless of whether you work in passenger service or freight service, regardless what craft you're in, and regardless of what union you pay dues to, are welcome to be RWU members because we need an organization for all of us. Yeah. You mentioned safety and working conditions as being part of the focus. And one of the things I noticed is you had a, a sign on your house that said something about one man crews. And that seems to be one of the big issues that RWU is focused on right now, right? Is these single crewed trains. Can you talk a little bit about what that has looked like, the changes in staffing and how that's affected you and why you're such an advocate for proper staffing? Sure. Well, a railroad train used to have upwards of five or six crew members and a caboose. And through various technologies, these workers have been deemed to be superfluous. At least that's according to the railroad. And so in 1985, a famous uh, union agreement, which was actually uh, shoved down our throats under the Reagan administration, called the Halloween Agreement, is what mandated the end of the caboose and the beginning of a reduction in crew. The job was pretty much finished, I believe, in what was the last national strike of railroad workers in 1991. And at that point, most trains were began running uh, with either three or even two employees in the head end. So now the standard crew consist that has been the rule for the last 30 years or so is a conductor and an engineer. Both are certified by the federal government and licensed and have a unique skill set. And every train on every class one railroad in this country to this day continues to operate with an engineer and a conductor. In 2004, the freight carriers, through their umbrella organization known as the National Carriers Conference Committee, 
This is the umbrella that bargains on behalf of all the carry the big carriers and some small ones too, for that matter, in national bargaining. And at that time, the carriers first suggested their desire to run trains with a single crew member. Well, the conductor is represented by one union. The engineer is represented by a different union. These two unions have a history of animosity and had a recent large battle between the two of them over what's called remote control operation, RCO. And this is a means by which you can switch out the freight yard, for example, Sparks, um, with a locomotive that's operated through a belt pack and remote control radio signal. And the conductor's union got the contract to do this. And that removed the engineer from many, many yard jobs all over the country. So now instead of having a 30-year engineer with 30 years seniority working Monday through Friday and going home on weekends and at night to be at home, that engineer lost his or her job, was bumped to the road and was now working a job that they thought they had finally gotten uh, away from. But that in many cases was all that was left. And so there was a lot of animosity at that point uh, between the BLE and the UTU. And the carriers, the big rail carriers knew this and they decided, hey, now we've gotten rid of the yard engineer. What's our next target? The road conductor. So we'll have engineer-only operation on the road and we will have conductors running the locomotives remotely in the yard and we will shed tens of thousands of employees and they saw dollar signs because it bodes really well on Wall Street and creates uh, (laughs) huge dividends and record stock prices. Nevertheless, they did not count on the opposition that would galvanize from the ranks of both engineers and conductors. This is the context within which uh, the predecessor group to RWU formed, known as Railroad Operating Crafts United. And ROCU's sole purpose for its few years of existence was to stop any agreement between the unions and the carriers to allow for single-employee crew operation. ROCU morphed in 2007 into Railroad Workers United, where we decided that why stop at engineers and conductors? There's track workers and signal maintainers, dispatchers uh, and machinists, electricians, firemen and oilers, and so forth. Let's go the whole gamut and build an organization based on universal solidarity. So we had a founding convention in Detroit, In 2008, we called ourselves Railroad Workers United, and we continue to this day to hold the two-person minimum crew uh, near and dear to our hearts. It's one of our longest, if not our longest, uh, on-running campaign. Mm -hmm. You mentioned strikes earlier briefly, and I know there are some industries where it's much more difficult to strike, even illegal for certain industries to strike. And you know there hasn't been a railroad strike in a long time Can you just talk a little bit about strikes as a strategy? Like what would happen if the railroad workers were to strike? It feels like that would be pretty paralyzing and pretty impactful. Is that something that is 
something that the RWU supports or explores or, or what's the general idea of strikes, how they work, whether that's an option that's on the table for these kind of issues. Can you talk about about strikes as a, a tool that unions can use, particularly around railroads? Sure. I mean, first off, I would say unions and strikes are sort of part and parcel. There's not a labor union worth its salt that has ever existed that has not advocated a strike. And while we see strikes as a last resort, because we believe that labor struggles should be able to be solved peacefully at the bargaining table, things can get very difficult when a corporation is failing. As we know, we've seen on a number of occasions where unions are in bargaining with a company that's going bankrupt. It's difficult and it's ugly. In this case, we don't have to worry about that. The class one railroads are some of the most profitable companies in America right now. Uh, Stock price is at record levels. Uh, Profits are at the highest they've ever been. And so right now we're facing what the class ones agree is a critical staffing shortage. Now, how we got here is another story. The unions will point to an operating model known as precision scheduled railroading. As I talked about, the railroad industry has opted to increase its profits, not by increasing market share, but by cost cutting and raising rates. PSR has thrown that whole modus operandi into overdrive. Cost cutting went into a frenzy around 2018, and tens of thousands of train and engine T&E workers lost their jobs, were furloughed. And then wham, the pandemic hit. Everything slowed down in the economy worldwide. And so even more workers were furloughed. And then things started to come back in the economy and, of course, on the railroad. But by this point, a lot of those workers had found other jobs. A lot of those workers had begun to do other things, like a lot of workplaces the industry was was floundering and, and lacking uh, staff to do the job. We see this as a self-inflicted wound. And I'm getting off this, the question here of strikes, except what we're looking at today is a situation where the rail industry could easily alleviate the staffing shortage. But how are you going to alleviate a staffing shortage? They're having very difficult times recruiting and retaining employees. How do you recruit someone to a job of conductor when it is well known that the railroads, if they had their way, would eliminate the conductor tomorrow? You can't expect someone to quit a job and hire on with you if you say, yeah, your job may not exist in a few months. At least we hope it won't exist. So that's a huge inhibitor to hiring. The second thing is we've had entry-level rates now on the railroad since that infamous Halloween agreement. So new employees hire in at a training wage. When they get off of the training uh, program, then they go to 75% of full rate, and it takes them five years to get to 100%. 
We never had this in the railroad industry until 1985. Now would be a great opportunity, a great time in history to get rid of those entry-level rates. And so instead of telling a, a prospective employee that in five years or more, you could make X amount of money, you could say, once you get done with your uh, uh, probationary period, you will be, and that's 90 days, you will be making this mm-hmm. amount of money. And besides, we, we've withdrawn our, our demand to the unions that we want to run these trains without conductors. So your job is secure, at least through to the next round of bargaining. But they refuse to do either one of these things. Also, let's look at the retention of existing employees. They're bleeding workers. Workers are leaving the rail industry with 5, 10, 20 years seniority. This is unheard of. Back in the day, if you had 10 years, you were vested in railroad retirement. In many cases, you came from a railroad family. You understood the benefits of railroading. And as a lot of the old heads told me when I hired in in the mid-90s, they said to me, you wouldn't mark off, which is to say you wouldn't you know, call in sick or not work because you didn't want to miss the fun. Railroading was a great job, and railroaders enjoyed a huge amount of camaraderie, self-management. You're out away from the prying eyes of your supervisors. You learn how to get the job done. Uh, you take pride in your work. You understand that you are part of a team. You develop some very, very intimate relationships. You also know you work a very skilled job and a very dangerous job. And as such, you build very, very close associations with your coworkers. And so the rail industry has changed all that. And people don't want to stick around. The high-vis attendance policy, so-called high-vis attendance policy on the BNSF is just the latest example of an extremely draconian policy where the railroad says, we have a problem, we don't have enough workers, and so we're going to make the workers that we have pretty much work all the time, no excuses, if you miss work more times than than we allow, which is almost never, uh, you're going to be subject to discipline up to and including termination. And so people are leaving the railroad industry for that and other reasons. The quality of life is just simply not there any longer, especially when you could go to work sitting at home, and I always like to say, in your underwear, drinking a beer, uh, and take care of the kids and make almost as much money and never have to worry about the phone ring, never have to worry about going to work at four in the morning in a blizzard, never have to worry about when you're going to come home again, et cetera, et cetera. And so the rail industry really needs to get with the program and start improving the quality of work life. But we've been three years in freight service without a contract. Well, going on three years in November. So about two and a half years now without a contract. All through the pandemic, railroad workers were lauded as essential heroes. But yet in bargaining, the rail carriers remain adamant. They refuse to budge on any of these key issues that I've just talked about. And so there's talk of striking. And whether or not we strike is another story. Under the Railway Labor Act, it's an 
incredibly complex labyrinth that you must navigate to be able to strike. And then when you do strike, Congress can very quickly and very easily and always does order you back to work when it's a national strike. And eventually it could go to what's called a presidential emergency board. I won't get into it because it's it's so confusing and convoluted. So we technically have the right to strike in answer to your question, but whether or not in actual fact a strike can be effective, um, that's debatable. Unionization is having kind of a moment in America right now. I know that there's Amazon warehouses that are unionizing or talking about unionizing. I don't know if they've actually got contracts yet, but they're well on their way. There's a lot of Starbucks and kind of retail and food service workers that are unionizing. What are your general thoughts on um, the this trend of unionization kind of coming into favor? Why, do you think that is a good sign for the future? Uh, and what do you hope to see from it? Well, Connor, it's extremely exciting. And um, we've, we've seen flurries of activity for sure uh, over the course of my lifetime. Uh, but generally, you know, when I came of age entering the workforce is when President Reagan broke the Air Traffic Controllers Union, PATCO. The labor movement called for a mass demonstration in Washington, D.C. I was there in 1981. We all demonstrated and we all went home and the rest is history. Our numbers have been depleted. Unions have come under attack. Wages, benefits, working conditions have generally not kept pace with inflation over the last 40 years. And union density has decreased and decreased to the point now where we're in the single digits in terms of the workforce. Uh, at our high point back in 1955 or so, union density was about one in three workers, maybe 35% of the private sector workforce, which is probably close to about one in two private sector workers. It's exciting to see especially young people organize into unions, especially in the service sector, especially in industries that have traditionally not been union. Because when young people are organizing, it can only bode well for the future of the labor movement. And seeing workers in some industries, for example, Starbucks, uh, the fast food industry, coffee shops, and so forth have extremely high turnover rates, extremely high levels of exploitation. And to see workers saying, we can overcome these uh, debilitating factors and organize and organize successfully, it can only bode well for all workers because what's good for Starbucks workers is good for Amazon workers. And what's good for Amazon workers is good for coal miners. And what's good for coal miners is good for railroaders. If you are a member of the working class and you don't see the world that way, it is ultimately to your detriment because as Eugene Debs, the, once again, our, our hero of the railroad workers union says, when I rise, it'll be with the ranks and not from the ranks. And your chances of being a millionaire are slim to none, but your chances of living out a good, solid life, owning a home, having a safe and secure job, the only way you're going to get that is through organizing with your coworkers. It's, it's very exciting to see, for example, it's, it, the Amazon uh, warehouse, uh, JFK 8, with 10,000 workers, which is quite a sizable workplace, 
we had an RWU steering committee meeting, I think the night after the victory, I mentioned it and I said, hey, we, they have a, Go, a GoFundMe site. We should donate. And within literally minutes, uh, the members of the Railroad Workers United Steering Committee had collectively donated $500 to the cause. So there's a lot of class awareness still in this country that what's good for one sector of the working class is good for the other, the rest of us. Excellent. How can people stay informed or learn about the RWU or the Nevada Rail Coalition? Where can you send people to get more information or to get looped in? Well, Nevada Rail Coalition has a website where you can contact us. You can learn who the member organizations are. You can see our mission statement, uh, our priorities for both freight and passenger service, et cetera, et cetera, and a wealth of other information. And that's at Nevada Rail Coalition. .org. And if anyone's interested in specifically in Railroad Workers United, that is at railroadworkersunited.org. And you can sign up for our news and information list and you can actually join as a railroad worker uh, or even as just another worker who generally we have uh, folks in trucking and in warehouse uh, Longshore and so forth, who want to be solidarity members of our organization at half the dues rate. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Ron. It was really great to learn about, you know, what goes into organizing in the rail sector, because I know it's a little more complex than some others, and a lot of the history. I know a little bit about unions, but it was great to learn some of the background and kind of how we got to where we are today and uh, and where you think we're going. That was fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time. Sure, Connor. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites, and special thanks to my guest, Ron Kamenko from the Nevada Rail Coalition and Railroad Workers United. Really appreciated learning so much about the rail industry and the railroad unions. This was a fantastic history lesson and overview, and I just learned so much. I always love to have guests that can teach me about something that is important that I didn't know about already. I hope you have the same experience that I did with this interview. If you enjoyed this episode or any other, please do me a favor and help spread the word about this podcast. I've been doing episodes just over a year now. This is my third season, and one of the challenges with a project like this is just spreading the word. I don't really have a budget for advertising. It's very expensive to do things like that, so I really rely on word of mouth. If you have any friends who listen to podcasts or you think might want to listen to podcasts, let them know how to find it. I'm on all the major podcast apps, share posts from my social media that I share episodes, whatever you can do to let people know that this show exists. There are tens of thousands of daily podcast listeners in Reno, and I would love for them all to know that we have a weekly local interview show that they might really enjoy. I appreciate your help in spreading the word. Also, if you want to support the show financially, I recently launched a Patreon account. You can find that at patreon.com slash renoites. There are several different tiers you can sign up for. If you want to throw me a few bucks a month, that really does help. Let me know that you're listening and appreciate the show and make it hopefully one day financially sustainable so that I can continue to make these episodes. Thank you so much for listening. See you all next week. 